You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. We'll read Acts 2, the verses 1 to 11, and then the verses 42 to 47. So the first part and the last part of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Then we turn to the last part, verse 42 and following. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses it in Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he has also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits to comfort me and to remain with me forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, have you ever been told that you are inconsiderate and insensitive? Are you ever inconsiderate or insensitive? Can this be said of you? I'm sure that if this afternoon we are totally honest with ourselves, we have to admit that at times these two words do describe us. Take, for example, you are a husband, but do you always understand everything that your wife does for you? Do you take into account all the work that she does in the home as well as outside of the home? The buying of food and clothes, the cooking, the cleaning, the decorating, the disciplining, the organizing, and so many other things? Or another example, 
You who are children here this afternoon, do you always take into account everything that your parents do for you? Feeding, clothing, providing a home, security, guidance, teaching, prayer, tidying up, driving you here, there, and everywhere? And the list goes on. In short, there are a lot of things that we do for one another that often go unnoticed, unmentioned, and as a result, unappreciated. Indeed, many a husband has been told by his wife that he does not realize all she does for him and that she really is not respected and esteemed for what she does. And the same goes for parents. They too can often be heard to complain that their children simply take them for granted. And the comment is heard, you do everything for them, and what do you get in return? Sometimes nothing more than a big mouth and a mad look. So what do we have here? We have situations in which people are acting in an inconsiderate and insensitive manner. And now you may wonder, why do I bring all of this to the fore? After all, we are dealing this afternoon once again with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is neither a wife nor a parent. True enough. But you know the Spirit is a person. And I dare say that as a person, he too is often overlooked, ignored, underestimated, In other words, the Spirit would have absolutely no problem accusing the believers of being inconsiderate and insensitive towards him, as well as making it stick. For example, do you know, and this is simply a short survey from the Acts of the Apostles, do you know that the Spirit is promised you by God the Father? That he comes to you as a heavenly gift? that he fills you and the church with boldness, that he grants you and all other believers wisdom and understanding, that he strengthens you in the face of opposition, that he equips and helps you in your calling, that he gives strength and encouragement to you when you are down, that he instructs and directs you, guides your life and the life of all believers, that he brings joy into your lives. I think that often, beloved, we overlook these things and thus make ourselves liable to the charge of being rather inconsiderate. Yes, and because of this, we also do not always thank God the Father for sending him, nor do we always thank him directly and personally for all that he does in our lives. In this way, we show our insensitivity, you can say, to the Spirit. In short then, beloved, the Spirit does a lot for us and in us, and indeed we can go even further and say that not only our lives as believers, but also the life of the entire church of Jesus Christ would be impossible were not for the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We owe him and continue to owe him a huge debt of gratitude. 
Yes, and to illustrate that, we do well to take a good and detailed look at the book of Acts, especially here at chapter 2. So in this third sermon under the heading of the Holy Spirit, we've looked at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit in the work and life and ministry of Christ. We come to the Spirit and the church. And we shall see, first of all, that the Spirit invades the church, the Spirit transforms the church, the Spirit grows the church. Well, beloved, you may remember the church had, in a sense, been warned. It had been warned by Jesus Christ himself, for we are told that one day in the time between his resurrection and ascension, he was eating with his disciples, and while they were eating, he warned them not to leave Jerusalem. And why were they not to leave Jerusalem? Because the gift that the Father had promised was coming to them there. What gift? In a few days, it reads in Acts 1.5, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they waited. They waited, and no doubt, they wondered too. Yes, and in due time, it happened. For ten days after Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, and Luke records it for us in Acts 2, those verses 1 to 4, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What an experience that must have been, oh, to have been there or at least to have been a fly on the wall. But in any case, there are a number of astonishing things being reported here. And the first has to do with the timing. For Luke writes that these remarkable things happened on the day of Pentecost. Why Pentecost? Well, surely it has to do with the fact that Pentecost, also called the Feast of Weeks, was one of the three great annual Jewish festivals. And in particular, it was that festival that was held every year in connection with the first fruits of the harvest. And hence the fact that the Spirit comes down on Pentecost is really a signal to the church that the harvest, the worldwide harvest of believers, is about to begin. A whole new chapter is being written in the history of God's saving works with his people. The second astonishing thing here is all about, beloved, not the timing, but the sight and the sound. First, it says, the disciples heard the sound of wind, and, and it wasn't just a little gentle breeze either. Luke describes it as a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. A sound, he says, that came down from heaven, which is remarkable because wind usually comes left or right. But this came straight down and filled the whole house. 
In short, it was as if a hurricane force wind was blowing straight through the place where the disciples were meeting. And added to the sound of this mighty wind was also the sight of fire tongues. Here we are to imagine tongues of fire filling the room, separating, flickering, dancing above the heads of the disciples. And the result was all of these people were, as it were, aglow. So what is this all about? Well, we need to keep in mind, beloved, that wind and fire are always signs and symbols of the Holy Spirit. For one, the word spirit can and is often translated as wind. And, and as for the fire part, that too is something that is connected with the spirit. For very early on already, John the Baptist had prophesied that the church would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When the Spirit comes, fire comes with Him. And you may know that already in the Old Testament, fire is a sign of the divine presence. Think of the pillar of cloud and fire. But it's also a sign of divine judgment. And hence, when the church hears the wind and sees the fire, it knows The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is really here. But then, beloved, in addition to these fiery tongues, there are also other tongues mentioned here, speaking tongues. Luke records that all of the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Obviously, the evidence of the Spirit's presence was not just on them, but also in them. The Spirit caused them to speak in other tongues. Now, what does that mean? Some would have us believe that the tongues referred to here have to do with unknown tongues or languages or with unintelligible babbling speech. In other words, they would insist that this is not at all a case of these people speaking normal human languages. But is that really true? A closer look at what Luke writes would appear to contradict this. But when the Jews who came from other countries heard the disciples speaking, they were, it says, they were amazed. And they even asked, are not all these who speak Galileans, then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and so forth. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. You see, beloved, twice reference is made to the fact that these foreign Jews recognize the languages or the tongues of the speakers. They weren't just babbling. They weren't speaking some kind of unknown type of language. Now, the fact of the matter is, 
that the disciples were speaking real, true foreign languages. And this conclusion, beloved, is further supported by the news that the hearers heard and could understand what precisely they were speaking about. You see, here we have real words, real syntax, real grammatical structure. And we also have a real message. And what's the message about? The message is about the wonders of God. And that's just a way of describing the wonders of God in the person and the work, especially of our Lord Jesus Christ. These tongues were telling about wonders. God's wonders. God's wonders in His Son. This was the message that was going forth intelligibly. Understandably, with comprehension. Now, beloved, it should also be noted that there are some who say that actually the wonder of Pentecost was not so much a speaking wonder as it was a hearing wonder. And they point to the fact that in the verses 6, 8, 11, It says either that the foreign Jews heard or hear them speak. And so these people assert that what the Spirit did at Pentecost was to enable people to hear rather than to speak in foreign tongues. But yet such a view, beloved, misses the mark. For while it's true that hearing was involved, no one can miss the fact that the real wonder here is in the speaking. Verse 4 says explicitly that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The hearing of other tongues resulted as a direct result of the miraculous speaking that went on. Well, enough said about different views and series. The bottom line here is that no matter how you interpret what happened on the day of Pentecost, there is ample evidence to include that the Holy Spirit invades and takes over. The church. Finally, he has come who was promised by the Father and by the Son. And with his coming, you'll notice the church is never ever the same again. And also today, our church life is still being radically affected and altered by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, you might wonder, affected and altered in what way? Well, to answer that, it might be good and beneficial to turn to the end of Acts 2, where you you begin to see the direct results and consequences of the Spirit's arrival in the church. For he transforms it. In what way does he transform the church? Well, first, the Spirit transforms it into what you might call a learning church. 
Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Earlier, the Lord Jesus had predicted that the Holy Spirit would in the future become the primary teacher in the church. Well, this is something that happens at Pentecost for then and there, the Holy Spirit, as it were, establishes a school in Jerusalem. And in one day, the enrollment of that school goes from 120 to more than 3,000. And in addition, the Holy Spirit does not teach all of these people directly and by himself. No, he uses the apostles. He makes them speak. He turns, and you might notice the remark, Galileans into teachers. Now, why the remark about the Galileans? Well, because there's two things here. The Galileans, number one, were commonly scorned because they spoke with a kind of dialect, which was looked down upon in places like Jerusalem. And number two, they were despised because Galilee was considered to be the backward part of the land. That's where the hillbillies live, so to speak. But now look what the Spirit does. He takes these Galileans and he turns them into able and eloquent teachers and preachers. He has them speak about what it was like to be with Jesus during those three momentous years and about what they learned from him and about him. And notice, as for the people, they they lapped it up. They hung, as it were, on the lips of the apostles. They, They couldn't get enough of what they heard. They wanted more and more. They were not interested in merely a little snippet of religious news here or there. Now, their thirst was insatiable. Their hunger for knowledge was boundless. And so, beloved, here is a church. A church that submits itself to apostolic instruction. A church that loves, believe it or not, doctrine. A church that is hungry to learn. So doing, it's also, I think, a church that makes us, as it were, look into a mirror and ask, can the same be said of us today? I may be wrong, but it strikes me that in Western churches today, There are many believers who are not so much interested in teaching apostolic or otherwise as they are in experience, religious experience. People today do not so much want to know more. They want to feel more. Whatever that means. And the result... There's often a growing ignorance in the church. If the surveys being taken today by George Barna and others are any indication, and there are many who call themselves Christians today, but who no longer know even the fundamentals of the gospel. The other day, 
I came across a church planter who didn't even know the Ten Commandments. How can you be a church planter and not know something as basic and fundamental as the Ten Commandments? So, beloved, one of the first things that the Spirit does when he comes to us as church is remind us that we need to be a church under instruction. Do we still love apostolic teaching? Do we still dare to tackle the letters of Paul to the churches in Rome and Galatia and Thessalonica and the letters of Peter and John? Do we still study and discuss and dig and seek to grow in the truth? Or is that just something for new believers in other parts of the world? But then, beloved, if the Spirit transforms the church into a learning church, it also transforms it, secondly, you can notice, into a caring church. Acts 2.42 also states that the believers also devoted themselves to something else, and that is called fellowship. And that one word, fellowship, is a very rich word that first of all refers to the common life, as it were, that believers have in the triune God. The Apostle John says our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And you can also add the Holy Spirit for 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 13, 14 reminds us that our fellowship is with the Holy Spirit as well. And so as believers, we share together, believe it or not, in God the Father, in God the Son, and in God the Holy Spirit. And yet the story goes on, for not only do we share in the triune God, but that word fellowship also means that we share out to one another. We share out our gifts, our talents, our compassion, our time, our assets, our love. You know, in that early New Testament church, it says... Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Verse 45. What that really means is they saw the need of their fellow believers. Maybe also of their unbelieving neighbors. And they responded. Voluntarily. Generously. Spontaneously. They responded. Now, perhaps this makes you ask, is the same expected of us today? Should we adopt a communistic-like setup or a Hutterite colony-like setup wherein we sell all of our houses and properties, cash in all of our stocks and bonds, if we have any, and put everything into a common pot? Well, in answer to that, notice a number of things. There's first the fact 
that what happened in Jerusalem at that time was entirely voluntary. Neither the Holy Spirit nor the apostles commanded for this to happen. And second, it's obvious from the expression, they broke bread in their homes, that they still had their own homes. And third, it would appear that these early believers were responding to a definite and drastic need in their community. We know from elsewhere in the Acts of the Apostles that the saints in Jerusalem were drastically, desperately poor. They needed help. And the church responded to their situation. And surely that's also the guiding principle for today. As a church, we may not ignore the needs of our fellow saints. We have to address them. And that's too what we try to do through the office of the deacons. Every Lord's Day, we have what many today consider to be a strange and rather outmoded custom. And you know what it is? What's a very outmoded custom in this church that happens every Lord's Day that you see hardly anywhere else? It's a collection, an offering for the needy. It's God's way of reminding us That caring for one another is a constant calling of the church of Jesus Christ. So it is, beloved, that the Spirit transforms the church into a learning and caring community, but also into a third thing, and that is, namely, it transforms the church into a worshipping community as well. Again, we're reminded by verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And also verse 46 says that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. In other words, worship was at the top of their list of religious priorities. These people came together in corporate worship, for prayer meetings, for all kinds of other gatherings. And indeed, it's also to be noted, there's even a certain balance in this description. The the first is the fact that they came together, it says, in the temple courts and in their homes. And you can be sure that when they went to the temple, they didn't go there to partake in the sacrifices any longer. Probably for a while, they still partook of the Jewish prayer services. But rather, they used the temple's many rooms as places in which to pray to celebrate the sacraments, and to listen to the word. Most likely this is where the worship of the congregation in Jerusalem was held on the Lord's Day. And as for their homes, 
They probably used those for the smaller and for the more informal gatherings that took place throughout the week. And so you see, they balance the personal and the corporate, the formal and the more informal, the traditional as well as the spontaneous. And now there's also another form of, of balance to be noted in our text with regard to worship. Because we're told in verse 46 that they had both glad and sincere hearts. There's a reminder that their worship was both joyful and dignified. Whether or not they always got the balance right is another question. But still, it was something that they and also we today need to strive for. On the one hand, our worship service shouldn't have the atmosphere of a funeral parlor. But on the other hand, neither should it have the atmosphere of a rock concert. Gladness and sincerity need to march hand in hand. In short then, beloved, the Spirit transforms the church in terms of its approach to the truth as taught by the apostles, in terms of the love and the care that they show one another, and in terms of the regularity and the character of their worship. Learning, loving, and liturgy. They all belong together. They're all tied together then. And they still need to be tied together today. Yes, and when there is a real commitment to these things, beloved, then you can also see in our text other things begin to happen as well. Well, what things? Well, look at verse 47b, the second part. What does it say? It says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Again, there are several things of interest here. The first is that it doesn't actually say in these verses at the end of Acts 2 that the church went out and witnessed directly. Often that is what is made of verse 47b, but that's not what's said. Rather, we're told that it's because these believers were so faithful and sincere in their deeds of learning, loving, and liturgy. That the Lord acted. For notice it says the Lord added to their number daily. It was the Lord who was doing the addition. The multiplication. In other words, be faithful in the things of the Lord. And the Lord through his spirit will give the increase. Now, of course, some may want to conclude from that, that means then that we don't have to bother with outreach or evangelism. But that's not what I'm saying. It just means that the first calling of the church is to be faithful. And that when the church is faithful, the increase will come. 
And included in that being faithful, beloved, is surely also the spreading and the speaking of the word of God. There's every indication that those early believers were not hesitant at all when it came to speaking and to declaring the wonders of God. They told about these wonders in all kinds of languages. Freely, enthusiastically, joyfully. They told about God. The great works that he had done in Jesus Christ and was still doing. The Spirit filled them with a mighty zeal to spread the word. And indeed, beloved, he should get the credit. The credit for transforming the church then and transforming the church today. True, our circumstances are different. But nevertheless, the calling to pray to the Spirit and to ask Him to make us more and more into a learning, loving, and worshiping, and growing church, that remains. And let's not overlook it. And there's also one more thing that we shouldn't overlook, and it's the fact that these believers enjoyed... The favor of all the people. Of course, what that means is that they were respected and esteemed by the community at large. And you might wonder, how in the world is that possible? Because the community at large was a predominantly Jewish antagonistic community to the gospel. Not so long before, they had crucified the Lord of glory. And so you would think that these early believers would have been scorned and mocked, oppressed, and persecuted. But that's not the case here on the day of Pentecost. It will become the case later on. On Pentecost Day, they are applauded. And that as well has to do with the Holy Spirit. His work... Beloved runs so deep and changes lives so drastically that the neighbors of these people have no recourse but to acknowledge that something wondrous is happening before their eyes. They see it, they hear it, they experience it. The Spirit is changing hearts and lives and softening up all those other people for the gospel. And you and I know that no witness is quite as effective, as changed, and altered lives. Yes, and herein lies a question. It's a question that's also a bit of a challenge. What kind of a witness are you in your neighborhood? Do your neighbors ever praise you? In a way, that's what should be happening. God forbid that they are condemning you because you're so hard and nasty to get along with. Or because you're always throwing wild parties on Friday and Saturday night. 
Or because your Monday conduct conflicts with your Sunday piety. Beloved, we praise the Spirit when our lives are filled with care and concern, honesty and uprightness, goodness, and persuasive speech. We praise the Spirit when salt is being sprinkled and the light is shining from our homes. Salt and light. That's what the Savior told us to be. And you know, that's what the Spirit helps us to be. Praise God for the Spirit and what He has done, is doing today, and will surely do also tomorrow in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.